Successful Farming and Corteva AgroScience present the seventh edition of the Farm School podcast. I'm Lori Boyer. Corteva provides cutting-edge solutions for farmers worldwide. Learn more at Corteva.com. So much is asked of today's farmers. You need to be business leaders, entrepreneurs, engineers, and surveyors of the soil. That's why Corteva partners with farmers gathering insights in the fields to enhance the innovations in the labs, creating agricultural and economic solutions for the current and future challenges farmers face. Because when you strive for better, you thrive together. Corteva, keep growing. Today's topic is using cover crops to increase organic matter. My guest is Rocky Bateman of New Salem, North Dakota. Rocky, as we get started with our conversation here today, tell us more about yourself. I was in the state legislature for six years, and and so they have to be careful. I'm in recovery. Don't give him a mic type of deal because he'll just take off. (laughs) But it was a very interesting experience. I learned a whole lot about how things work. And it's kind of interesting because now that I know how the system works, I don't have to be there every day as a legislature, as a legislator. I can go in and speak to the issues that interest me and that I'm passionate about and not have to aggravate myself with all the other things. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm assuming you served in the House of Representatives. Tell me about your experience. Back in those days, terms were two years. They have since been made to four-year terms. I was in three sessions, six years, and I served my first year on judiciary and ag committees. And the second two sessions, I was on appropriations. And you're still active, though, it sounds like. Yes, I'm still active in the party. Past legislators are automatically given a seat on the district parties, board of directors type of deal. And uh, So I'm still active in politics from behind the scenes, which is a lot better place to be. Rocky, you're from New Salem, North Dakota. On my mother's side of the family came and homesteaded here in, in 1897. My great-great-grandfather and my great-grandfather, the two of them came and homesteaded two quarters side by side. And we are still living there. That makes me the fifth generation to be living on the family homestead. What all do you grow? Like a lot of people, we grow corn and beans, spring wheat. We raise cover crop, forage cover crops for hay, alfalfa. Sometimes we'll raise a few other things, depends upon. uh, We do raise sunflowers from time to time. Uh, It's a great taproot system that we'll put on new ground to, you know, deal with issues. Mostly hard pan, they're like a bile plow. They're like the forbs on the prairie. And we use them as a tool to penetrate hard ground. Rocky, among the things that your family has been involved in is the North Dakota Beef Commission, where your wife has played a pretty big role. She was executive director for North Dakota State Beef Commission for 38 and a half years. Uh, That's the agency that administers the checkoff program. She retired in last December, makes her the longest serving CEO in the nation when she retired. That's neat. Do you still have livestock now? Just a few cows. We've turned the livestock over to the kids. My oldest daughter and son-in-law are running the cows here now. And my wife and I have a half a dozen cattle. They let me go to the back. I can haul manure. I can push cattle up the aisle. I'm just involved enough to get the back end of the deal. Literally. (laughs) (laughs) You mentioned one of your kids there. So do you have other kids there? Yes, we have three daughters. Our oldest daughter and her husband lived just a short distance away. We sold them part of the place early so they could be close to the cattle in the yard. Uh, our middle daughter is married to a rancher and a rodeo producer up in the northern part of the state at Berthold. And our youngest daughter is uh, working for an equine vet clinic, which is what she had degrees in equine science and stuff. So it's right up her alley. And they're also training her to do a lot of 
in shop. So she's the office manager, but she also works in back as a tech. Rocky, according to some of the background information I have here, you have been also active in your local soil conservation district. Tell me more about that. I've been a director on our soil conservation district board since 2005. And because I hold that position, I'm eligible to be on other boards. I'm just immediate past president of the state association of soil conservation districts, which is a two-year term. And I've also been active with the USDA Research Center and their customer focus group, helping promote research. Since those entities cannot lobby the customer focus group, who is a support group for them, we will go and help lobby for them because they can't. And because we've been able to do that, we've started a research project at Mandan's USDA ARS research station. And it's known as the Healthy Soils, Healthy Food, Healthy Peoples Initiative, where we look at how different farming practices, no-till, no-till dynamic, conventional, organic, we're looking at uh, measuring nutrient densities in all the produce coming off of that, whether it's grain or forage. And we're also looking at different grazing practices on how that affects nutrient density in livestock. And at this point, we've seen a significant increase in nutrient density in one system. And we've also been able to measure an increase in nutrient density on beef. And also involved with that is the Fargo Research Station, which has the latest instrumentation to measure that nutrient density. And then the Human Research Lab in Grand Forks, which there are only five in the United States, two that are still independent, not associated with the college. And they're going to measure how that increased nutrient density affects human health. And can we preserve that increased and get it into the human population? It's a long-term research project. It's partially funded. And at this point, and but because of the budget restraints in Washington and all those arguments, we have not been able to fully fund it. But at this point, we have funded it enough that it is off and running. In time, we're going to grow it to be a nationwide program. We did get permission from USDA Beltsville when we started this. They said if we could find new money, which we did through the legislative process in Washington, that they would pass it through. And because of that, we've got it started. Our intent when we started this program was to be a national program and its scope just from the get-go, hoping it would grow in time. And at this point, a research lab in Europe has found out about it and asked to be part of it. And They've been allowed in on the ground floor of this research project. So it's already gone international, and we're really excited where this can take us in the future and the effect it can have on farming practices across the nation. What all do you grow on your farm? We grow corn and beans, spring wheat. We raise cover crop, forage cover crops for hay, alfalfa. Sometimes we'll raise a few other things, depends upon. uh, We do raise sunflowers from time to time. Uh, It's a great taproot system that we'll put on new ground to, you know, deal with issues mostly hard pan. They're like a bile plow. They're like the Forbes on the prairie. And we use them as a tool to penetrate hard ground. Rocky, among the things that your family has been involved in is the North Dakota Beef Commission, where your wife has played a pretty big role. She was executive director for North Dakota State Beef Commission for 38 and a half years. Uh, that's the agency that administers the checkoff program. She retired in last December makes her the longest serving CEO in the nation when she retired. That's neat. Do you still have livestock now? Just a few cows. We've turned the livestock over to the kids. My oldest daughter and son-in-law are running the cows here now. And my wife and I have a half a dozen cattle. They let me go to the back. I can haul manure. I can push cattle up the aisle. I'm just involved enough to get the back end of the deal. Literally. (laughs) (laughs) You mentioned 
one of your kids there. So do you have other kids there? Yes, we have three daughters. Our oldest daughter and her husband lived just a short distance away. We sold them part of the place early so they could be close to the cattle in the yard. Uh, Our middle daughter is married to a rancher and a rodeo producer up in the northern part of the state at Berthold. And our youngest daughter is uh, working for an equine vet clinic, which is what she had degrees in equine science and stuff. So it's right up her alley. And they're also training her to do a lot of in-shop stuff. She's the office manager, but she also works in back as a tech. Rocky, according to some of the background information I have here, you have been also active in your local soil conservation district. Tell me more about that. I've been a director on our soil conservation district board since 2005. And because I hold that position, I'm eligible to be on other boards. I'm just immediate past president of the state association of soil conservation districts, which is a two-year term. And I've also been active with the USDA Research Center and their customer focus group, helping promote research. Since those entities cannot lobby the customer focus group, who is a support group for them, we will go and help lobby for them because they can't. And because we've been able to do that, we've started a research project at Mandan's USDA ARS research station. And it's known as the Healthy Soils, Healthy Food, Healthy Peoples Initiative, where we look at how different farming practices, no-till, no-till dynamic, conventional, organic, we're looking at uh, measuring nutrient densities in all the produce coming off of that, whether it's grain or forage. And we're also looking at different grazing practices on how that affects nutrient density in livestock. And at this point, we've seen a significant increase in nutrient density in one system. And we've also been able to measure an increase in nutrient density on beef. And also involved with that is the Fargo Research Station, which has the latest instrumentation to measure that nutrient density. And then the Human Research Lab in Grand Forks, which there are only five in the United States, two that are still independent, not associated with the college. And they're going to measure how that increased nutrient density affects human health. And can we preserve that increased and get it into the human population? It's a long-term research project. It's partially funded and at this point. And, but because of the budget restraints in Washington and all those arguments, we have not been able to fully fund it. But at this point, we have funded it enough that it is off and running. In time, we're going to grow it to be a nationwide program. We did get permission from USDA Beltsville when we started this. They said if we could find new money, which we did through the legislative process in Washington, that they would pass it through. And because of that, we've got it started. Our intent when we started this program was to be a national program and its scope just from the get-go, hoping it would grow in time. And at this point, a research lab in Europe has found out about it and asked to be part of it. And they've been allowed in on the ground floor of this research project. So it's already gone international, and we're really excited where this can take us in the future and the effect it can have on farming practices across the nation. Rocky, let's talk about the fact that you have had success farming in a marginal area. The funny story here is my ancestors got here late. Uh, All the good land was taken. And actually, one of the quarters that's on our homestead is a failed homestead. The guy was here two winters, but I can see why he left. He lived in a dugout in the middle of the prairie, (laughs) heating with buffalo chips and and, uh, what wood he could scavenge. And after two winters with nothing to do but read his Bible, he went back. (laughs) But our land is very marginal. It's rolling. It's in a Heart River watershed. Probably never should have been farm or broke, farmed or broke up, but it was. And so we're trying to figure out, you know, how do we make this work? At this point in time, we're just finishing our 49th 
cropping season here. I started farming right out of high school. The summer I graduated, folks helped me buy the neighbor's farm. And so we've been here a long time. But in that, I have 24 years of conventional farming with tillage. That's what I call conventional. My crops aren't the biggest, but they're average. And considering that we have such marginal land and our crops are comparable to the guys with the really good land that are still working their ground, they're now talking to me. They're not laughing at me anymore. Rocky, after you made the switch to no-till and to cover cropping systems, what crops do you grow? One of the first things we recognized here is that within nature, within these prairies up here, there are over 130 plant species identified here by a botanist back in the fort days, who also was a fort doctor when we had all the, the forts along the Missouri River here. And knowing that, and there are four different plant species. And so we recognize that within nature, there's huge diversity. So we started planting one of each of the four plant species, warm and cool season broadleaves and warm and cool season grasses. And we've been rotating them through our system here And it took about four or five years, which just about everybody switching to no-till, they're going to see that um, all of a sudden it took off. We still have a trend line, even though we go up and down a little bit, our trend line for overall yields is still increasing and our soil health numbers are still increasing. We were at a point in time where we were less than 1% organic matter whole farm because it's very marginal and tillage destroys organic matter. And once you get below 1%, the system shuts down. There's not enough to feed the biology anymore. And now we're pushing in 25 years, we're pushing that 5% whole farm. We were higher, but we switched labs and we lost about seven tenths of a percent organic matter across the board. But the tests we're getting now, we deem to be way more accurate. And once you get to that point, then that starts to mineralize and, and feed the system. So we're doing everything we can to get root systems into the ground and leave them there untouched. When we look at organic matter, we're not so concerned about what's on the surface. We're concerned about what is in the ground because that's twice as readily available as the surface stuff. So we're trying to feed the biology. We're seeing changes in our organic matter. We're seeing changes in our pH. We're seeing changes in our bacterial fungal ratios. They're coming back together. So what we're trying to do is take this farm and the numbers we're measuring back to what they were as native prairie. One of the unique things about the Mandan Research Station is they have over 100 years of core sampling, soil samples, that they've been collecting since basically the plows came to the prairies here and that station started in the very early 1900s. And so we can look at those and we've been able to identify the degradation of the soils over time with tillage. And now we're at a point where we're looking at how we can build them back. Our goal is to get the numbers back as close as we can, and we think we can take them all the way back to what they were as prairie. That's the way these soils were designed to operate. What we have found is when we do that, instead of trying to force it with iron and diesel fuel to do whatever we tell it to do, we have found that this approach is far more productive. Instead of the soil fighting back because we're beating it up so bad, we're kind of at a point in time where it's asking, okay, you've been nice to me. What can I do back for you? And we've been seeing nothing but positive results ever since we started this trip. Rocky, how have things changed since you started doing soil health cropping systems versus now? When we started this whole thing, cover crops wasn't a thing. The only tool we had or two things we had to use was to stop tillage, which we consider to be the most destructive force in nature in the farming area. And crop diversity, trying to rotate those four types of plants. The results at first were minimal, but they were still positive. And later on, then cover crops became a 
real big thing. And we studied them a little bit before we started. We have been having difficulty finding a cool season broadleaf in an annual crop that works really well. We started using cover crops to fill that hole, and we'll put several different plants in there. Our cover crops, we try to have at least three of every one of those plant species. So we usually never seed less than 12 plants in community. And what we find is there's a multiplying effect, not an additional effect of those plants in community. And that's kind of how nature works. We don't do the intercropping or after season. We put in full season cover crops and it's become a really valuable resource for as far as forage for our livestock enterprises. We hay it and we sell it to the kids, but we cut it high leaving lots of stubble, and we have lots of plants that'll come back in the fall. And so we get regrowth, so we have a cover, and then some years we get good moisture, we'll actually have good grazing for the cattle, plus the hay crop. I know you've just talked about some of the benefits. Are there any other pros, and what are the cons to using this system? Initially, the thinking on my part was that I'm giving up acreage, you know, to a cash crop. But what we found out over time, with the amount of livestock in this area, Everybody's asking me if I have extra hay for sale. It's become a saleable product. And so it is not a loss of one year without production. But what we're finding, the crops afterwards, it's very similar results with planting after a cover crop to what we used to get off of summer follow. After you first established your cover crops, what did you do next? Tried to figure out how to put it into rotation. You know, we've seen in in this 25-year period, we've seen our corn yields just about triple from what they were, you know, our proven yields from the 70s and 80s. And we've also seen wheat yields just about triple on continuous cropping systems. And that trend line is still going up. I don't think we found the top because one of the first things that happened is the water cycle got restored. And you see that all over, even to the guys at no-tilling, they just went to single pass seeding systems. The water cycle is the first thing that restores itself. And, and that's why you saw the yields just about double there's science behind that. We can, you know, you can talk about the numbers. It's really boring, but it has a really positive effect. Instead of having four inches of stored moisture, like summer follow did maximum because the rest either evaporated or leached, we're now storing up to seven inches. Well, when you plant it, you give up an inch. So you're looking at a four inch advantage to the single seeding systems. One inch of moisture equates to about five bushels of wheat. And Within two, three years, just about everybody was seeing 20 bushel bump in yields just by going to single pass seeding system. Now we're seeing that going way higher as the mineral cycles start to restore themselves and other numbers start to come into balance and the water efficacy becomes way higher. I haven't seen any negatives in this whole journey. There are some. I mean, you better talk to somebody. And that's what I was able to do, mentor under somebody that was really sharp I found the sharpest people I could find, and those were the scientists at the research station, and they tolerated me. (laughs) They answered my questions. You know, those are busy people, uh, you know, and and they're at a level way above me. But I says, keep it simple. If I go home and do this, is this the result I should get? And they said, yes, and in time. And so I've been staying true to their advice, and, and it is working. This isn't just a hope that it might work. It absolutely works if you do it right. I have seen guys, though, trying to imitate it and not ask any questions, and they're struggling. Because there's some things you have to understand to make it really work. There's some do's and there's some don'ts. And one of the don'ts is tillage. And the farther away you can get from it, in fact, if you can totally eliminate it, the better your results are going to be. And we see it over and over and over again. And one of the biggest things that they're struggling with now, a lot of guys said, well, we're going to go back and 
we're just going to use the vertical tillage tools. Well, what we found, it only takes five, six passes to reduce your water infiltration by up to 50%. And it's causing problems. Now, instead of a hard pan from the plow four or five inches deep, we got a hard pan an inch deep from these tools and the water's just standing there not soaking away. We've got soil blowing again. And I'm probably as dyed in the wool as you're going to find anybody. One pass with the disc opener and nothing else. And that's what works the best. I think you have answered this question, but I'm going to go ahead and ask it anyway, in case there's anything else. How did you evolve into your current cropping system? Just across the river from us here is Burley County, and they have the Minokan farm. They were doing test plots early on, on all different kinds of cover crops. And back in 2001, 2002, somewhere in there, the early 2000s, they did a test plot and it was a drought here. And they had single cover crops and they had doubles and triples and different combinations trying to see which was the best way to go because nobody knew at that point. And at the end of the day, when they were planting that, they had a lot of seed left over. So they threw it all together, mixed it together and planted one plot with a cocktail of many, many species. When we did the tour of those plots, being it was drought, every plot had died because of lack of moisture, except the one which was flourishing. And that was the one with all of the species in it. And Dr. Don Tanaka, who was the lead soil scientist at the USDA research, was on the tour that day. And I was visiting with him as we were getting on the bus to leave. And he said, those guys just saved me 10 years of research. And the thinking is, and what they've proved now since, is that that diversity, the multiplying effect that you get from multi-species That's why I plant three of each of the four or more species when I plant a cover crop. And that's what they've learned you need to do to have true success. Now, I know a lot of people, they look at, well, we'll put rye in and call it a cover crop. Well, it's still a monoculture. And monocultures in the plow is what have destroyed the soil. So this is our chance to regenerate and speed up biological time by using this mass diversity in our cover crops. Rocky, what cover crops have you found to be most effective in increasing that organic matter? We're still experimenting. You know, some of them we put in there like the brassicas, like everybody talks turnips and radishes. Well, most of them are cool season and they're broadleaves. And they imitate the forbs that are naturally growing on the prairie. Forbs are a bioplow. So are the brassicas. The biology doesn't care if it's a domestic one or if it's a native one. They just know they're finally getting fed and treated like they used to be. So you need to look at what your grasses were on the prairie. That's why we have research stations every 100 miles, because that all changes about that far. The closer you can understand or the better you can understand what type of grasses you had early on and as prairie, and then plant species that are similar to that with root systems. When we first started, when we did not have cover crops, we looked at root systems. And this country had been cool season grasses, you know, wheat, oats, barley, and maybe they might plant corn for cattle for silage, which is a warm season grass. So there were no broadleaves. So when we started this, we intentionally left wheat out and we went broadleaves and warm season grasses, we raised corn and lots of sunflowers. We went to beans and things like that. We looked at what type of root system they had. Now, like cool season grasses, two-thirds above the ground and one-third below the ground. Sunflowers and corn are 50-50. What you see, you get 50% above ground growth and 50% under the ground growth. So we looked at what plants we could raise that would give us more root mass to leave in the soil after the crop. We think we were really able to speed things up by doing that. I actually told one of my neighbors, I think I know how to make money farming. I quit raising wheat. <laughs> but we put it back in the system. It's a good crop in the rotation. 
It's not always one of the more profitable ones, but it's really necessary for feeding the biology and keeping cover on the surface as well as in the ground. When it comes to water use, are cover crops high-intensity water use crops? Yes and no. I don't think it's a loss. We had so much hard pan that we couldn't get water in the ground. Air couldn't come out. It would just, it was hard. It would just run off. Our goal with this system is to try and catch every drop of rain where it falls and hold it there. A good soil is about 50% dirt and 50% air and water. And with tillage, we've knocked all the air and water out. So it's so hard, nothing can get in. By leaving all these root systems in the ground, the water can go in. And as the water's going in, the air can escape. So we have a restored water cycle. And that was key to getting this thing going. We used to say it took 10 inches of rain is about what we could get to a crop if we had our normal 14, 15 inches of rain because you had evaporation and runoff. And now we're seeing what rain we get. We don't see runoff anymore. We don't see water erosion anymore. Our long-term goal is to not be satisfied with a T-yield loss. I mean, so many tons of soil a year. Our goal is to totally eliminate soil loss and start building back. We think long-term that we can start restoring and rebuilding topsoil right here. And to the naysayers, we've got some guys that are way ahead of me and they can actually document that they're restoring top and rebuilding topsoil. You're not going to see it. I mean, it's taken us a hundred and some years, 120 years to destroy this system. We're not going to build it back in five or 10. It's going to probably take 50 to a hundred years, but our long-term goal, and some guys are already there and I'm going to get there is to start rebuilding topsoil and not lose any. Where do you source your seed and what seeding method do you use? I have to be careful since we were threatened with a lawsuit <laughs> over saying one company over the other. I would just say that there are several in the area. If, in fact, you're serious about doing this, <clears throat> call the Martin County Soil Conservation District or the Burley County Soil Conservation District, and they can give you a list of suppliers, and we're not going to say one over the other. And I have to leave it there. Sure, I understand, Rocky. Now, what about the seeding method? I want to go back to the cover crop seed for just a second. One of the things that these guys are doing, they only use certified seed. The quality of is excellent. And one of the things we're running into trouble with is weed seeds. Some people bought millet seed out of a state farther south that changed its laws that what we consider to be a prohibited noxious weed up here is not that down in the states anymore. And so because of that, Palmer amaranth came up here in the millet seed that we were using. So you need to be careful about where you source your cover crop seeds from. That's why the guys up here use only certified seed anymore. They can't certify it from the source. We don't use it. If you've got good seed of your own, you can probably make your own. But some of the companies up here will only use their seed certified seed. And we're trying to make sure that nobody gets any introduced, new introduced weed seeds into the system. What about your yields? Have they continued to increase in using a cover crop system? Yes. In fact, I rented a half section of land this last season. By definition, by the government's definition of looking at soil maps, it is by far the best soil I have to farm. And yet, because of the way it was farmed, it was really a disappointing yield this year. There's hard pan to no end. So on our land, we've had the USDA's, the NACD's come out. They have to recertify every so many years in the field doing soil tests. And I sponsored a group of them that had trained not only here in Morton County, but they'd also gone to the eastern side of state, to the Fargo area, to the Red River Valley, which is supposed to be like the breadbasket of the world. And 
my soil test by definition of soil health was better than the Red River Valleys, um, which are heavy clays. But, I mean, you can work with them too, which was interesting because I had the soil aggregation. I had the glomalin was functioning and all these things. And they were just amazed that my marginal ground out here had that good of soil health qualities. And, you know, they could identify them. And so I'm excited. I, 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 you don't have to listen to me. You can come out here with a shovel and look at what's underneath the ground. And the, the soils here will speak for themselves of how successful this system is. Do you harvest cover crops with the livestock? Yes and no. We just about always take a hay crop off. It depends upon fencing. Not all our ground is fenced, so it doesn't always get grazed. But most of the time, there's enough regrowth in the fall that we can put the cattle out there for a period of time. And it is important. Uh, one of the things we've learned is the big secret to some of the success is the animal impact, that hoof action, that spreading of the manures and the urns across the landscape. They all have a very, very positive effect on soil health. In fact, the Minokan farm actually did some experimenting with spraying on raw milk. Why would you do that? Because the biology in the raw milk that they were spraying on is the same as the biology in the gut of an animal, which is the same as what's in the ground, and it wasn't there anymore. So trying to jumpstart this thing and get some of the biology added back in, there's ways you can do that. And that was just one example of one of the things they tried. Now they're doing several other things that are really interesting too, but it would be best if they explained it. Have your soils become more resilient? Oh, yeah, absolutely. In our old system, the conventional system, in this country, you know, you'd maybe have two good years out of 10, and then some that were average, and you'd always have them two, three really bad years. Things are really stable. Uh, We don't see that big swing in production anymore. Even in dry years, we get fairly decent crops now. And that's the exciting part. It really stabilized the soil. And knowing what I know now, for good reason. Rocky, what else would you like to say or add to our conversation here today? I think what we're doing here should be the standard. A lot of people are resisting it. I'm concerned for future generations. Knowing what I know now, I, I, earlier on, I would have never recommended them come back to the farm. I mean, it just didn't work, but it works now. I can show a positive result from the management side. My son is an ag loan officer. My son-in-law is an ag loan officer. And we've had this discussion many times and I didn't tell him what to do because I've heard of other banks doing it. They're looking at the type of system the farmers are using and they're making notes as to who's really successful and who's struggling. And bankers will tell you the guys that are still farming conventional or working the ground are the guys that they can just about put a timeline on when they're going to go broke. As to the guys that have at least gone to a single pass seeding and virtually eliminated tillage, those guys are thriving and very, very successful. So from just a financial standpoint, everybody wants to know what the numbers are. Talk to a banker <laughs> and guys that have both systems. And because our story here is I had that conversation across from my loan officer. He's suggesting maybe I should consider quitting. So it wasn't like we could just go do a couple acres and see if it worked. It was all or nothing. And I knew enough people that were doing this that I went to them and I actually had to find a new loan officer. And that bank, the new loan officer, gave me five years to turn it around. He says, if you do this, I've seen everybody else have this success in this timeline. And he was right. We did turn it around in that time. And We're still there with that bank. So it's been a good thing all the way around for us financially. It's been good for the soil. It's good for future generations. It's kind of fun when we have family discussions. I'll start a sentence and now the girls will finish them for me because they know what I'm thinking. So they've been listening 
And John's been observing and he's straight out said, he says, guys, he said, guys come in and their numbers don't back up what they're actually doing. But the guys that come in with the numbers from this type of system, they're real, they're working and they're sustainable. And all of this sustainability is something all of our urban brothers and sisters are asking for. I don't know of a better system to address all of their concerns with than the one we're using here. Our carbon footprint is a good one. We 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 could we actually have excess carbon storing capacity. Just like we try and catch every drop of rain where it falls, we're trying to store that carbon because carbon, in essence, you know, the plants breathe in carbon and they give off oxygen. They store that carbon in the plant that goes into the root systems. And that's the gas that goes into the tanks of the biology that makes the system work. So we're managing a system that you can't see, multiplying, growing, you know, in its numbers. And when you do that first, everything else becomes secondary. So probably the biggest advice I've got to anybody, and it's a system we've adopted here, our, our goal is to do no harm to the soil and to the system. And this no-till system we're in, by adding that dynamic component of the cover crops is by far the best system scientifically proven to date. And I would say just from implementation as a farmer, we've never had such good results. Thank you to Rocky Bateman for being a guest on today's Farm School podcast brought to you by Corteva AgriScience, where they provide cutting edge solutions for farmers worldwide. Learn more at Corteva.com. I'm Lori Boyer for Successful Farming.